research that, but I remember when the movie The Sixth Sense came out. And I remember watching that movie, and I think if you've seen it, and I think most of us have, um, that there's that great plot twist in the end where it changes everything that you thought about the movie, right? But we're familiar with that. I bring up The Sixth Sense because that was the first movie I remember watching as a small child and thinking, wow, that really blew my mind. Everything I thought was real was not real, and everything that I thought was not real actually was. And what that reminds me of is that the plot twist that we often see in movies, it brings to fore this idea that sometimes things aren't always as they appear to be, right? We can go through life and we can look at the data that's presented to our eyes and ears and our senses, and we interpret it a certain way, right? But often in the Scripture, it is shown to us that the way that we commonly interpret the world and the data that comes in from around us, it's actually different and opposite to that. And in this passage, I think that we see this very thing put before our face. We have honor and horror put before us and reversed. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that King Herod, a man that sought his own honor all the days of his life, has a tormented conscience because of the execution of John the Baptist at his birthday party. The purpose of this passage I would propose to you today is to warn us about the cascading effects of sin. To encourage the godly to perseverance and to foreshadow the death of Jesus Christ. And three points will be considered. And forgive me, I, I don't often use alliteration, but I couldn't help myself this week, alright? We have King Herod's horror, John the Baptist's honor, and Jesus Christ's harbinger. Now, harbinger, you might not be familiar with that. It's a, a foretelling or it's a, a prophecy, something that shadows something to come. All right? The horror of King Herod is what we're going to look at first. And I think that this is really the main point of what we're to see in this passage that honor actually leads to horror in this passage. And the horror of King Herod, as we examine this text, is first seen in verses 1 and 2 where we see the horror of a troubled conscience. The horror of a troubled conscience. Notice with me. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. As we look at the horror of a troubled conscience in this text, I want us to think about the context that surrounds this passage and see that it really has a very unique focus compared to everything else we've seen in Matthew thus far. Everything in Matthew up to this point has been almost explicitly focused on Jesus Christ as the main character, or at least a character that's being responded to in a very direct way. But in this passage, Jesus is not really explicitly a member of the, of the story here. We have him, of course, listed in verse 1, Herod hearing about the fame of Jesus, and then verse 12, that the disciples went and told Jesus. But other than that, the main characters in this plot are really focused on two people. That's John the Baptist and Herod, his murderer. Herod, his murderer. Now, 
What I want us to see as well is that this is not a surface level description of a historical reason why John the Baptist was killed and how he was killed. We don't read this story as we're reading a historical textbook opening it up. Rather, I think that when we read this text, the author wants us to see kind of a horrific element to the what's going on here. A horrific element. The Bible shows us, I believe, the horror of Herod's condition. And his condition is horrific because he has a bad conscience. He has a bad conscience. Now, a conscience, biblically speaking, we could say it's that internal courtroom where your mind either pounds the gavel and says you're guilty or you're innocent before God. And Herod here, he hears of the fame of Jesus Christ and he interprets that as this is John the Baptist because he knew he was guilty of great sin. His conscience was deeply troubled. The first thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize in this text is that Herod had horror in his conscience. He was troubled by the fact that the man that he killed, he knew to be an honorable man, knew to be a good man, but he did it anyway. Now, this bad conscience that Herod has, we have to think about that biblically, that bad conscience, a conscience that's condemned in its own guilt, can often have very good results attending it. We know that the first rule or the first use of the law of God is to convict us of our sin that it might guide us to Jesus Christ, right? But we see Herod having a bad conscience, not to a good end, not to repentance, but rather deepening in his sin. Now, this bad conscience of Herod is without faith. And therefore, without faith, faith in a Savior that saves you from a bad conscience and the things that you've done, it only leads to torment in their life. And I want us to notice something. I find it fascinating that what brings to mind Herod's torment and his bad conscience is Jesus Christ's miracles. Isn't that interesting? Well, we, we might ask, what were Jesus Christ's miracles given to do? Well, they were to convince us of God's grace towards humanity, aren't they? Jesus Christ came, preached the gospel of salvation to any that would hear, and then he would heal a leper to show it doesn't matter how filthy you are in your conscience, what kind of sins you've committed. Jesus Christ is able to cleanse you. He has open arms. He's able and willing to do it. But Herod, hearing of these miracles, rather than thinking, oh, I have a bad conscience and I'll go to the one that can cleanse me. Without faith, this bad conscience says the opposite thing. This is condemnation to me. This man whom I killed is raised from the dead and now I'm in deep trouble. Herod has a bad conscience and that is a horror to him. But there's also another horror that we see in this passage. We have the horror of a seared conscience. We've seen that he has a bad conscience because of what he's done, but the rest of this text tells us why he has that bad conscience, what he had done to have a bad conscience. We see that in verses 3 through 12. And really, when I was considering this text, I want us to just look down at those verses and notice the amount of sins that are cataloged for us in King Herod. Now, we know that Herod has a bad conscience. And as I thought about that, I have many 
tender-minded believers that have come to me in my office, called me on the phone, and they have said that they feel condemned. They feel like perhaps they've lost their salvation because they've committed such and such a sin. They have a tender conscience, right? And it's a good opportunity for me to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? To, to say it's the poor in spirit that, in, that inherit the kingdom of God. But Herod here, I want us to be clear, he does not have a bad conscience because he has a tender conscience, okay? It's not as if Herod's cataloging his sins, making sure he's right before the Lord and finds that he has a bad conscience. Rather, Herod is a man that lived wickedly his entire life, but this event recorded is so sinful, it even penetrates his wicked, seared mind. It, it penetrates his mind even. Now, I want us to see that the sins enumerated in this passage are so exceedingly sinful that it even bothers a wicked king. Now, just look with me down the text. In verse 3, we see Herod committing the sin of imprisoning, as Jesus Christ says, the greatest man born of woman. The greatest Old Testament prophet, the pinnacle of Old Testament prophecy, is John the Baptist himself. No man prior to Christ had such a clear understanding of the gospel and the kingdom of God as John the Baptist did. And Herod commits the sin of imprisoning this man. But further than that, notice in verse 4, why did he imprison him? It adds to his sin because he imprisoned him for rebuking his own personal sin. He came to him and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Quoting from Leviticus chapter 18 where Moses catalogs the sexual sins of the people and says, this is not lawful for you to do. Now, I want you to notice in verse 4, John had been saying to him, right? This isn't John one time in the wilderness preaching a, gospel, preaching a sermon and saying, Herod's a wicked man and he did this. The language indicates that this was a constant part of John the Baptist's ministry. That he was saying personally, I believe, to Herod, you should not be doing this. You need to put away this woman because it's not lawful for you to have her. And in Luke chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, we even have a little more detailed interaction between John the Baptist and Herod. And it's more detailed, not in this particular sin, but in all the things that John had said to him. Notice verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he, that is John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and notice, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He added this to all of his evil deeds that he locked John in prison. This was, so to speak, part of the capstone of Herod's sinful, unbelieving life that he imprisoned John the Baptist. Now, we continue down the text. In verse 5, we see that Herod is sinful because he desires to murder John the Baptist, and he's only kept, kept back because he fears the people, because they think he's a prophet. He has fear of man. In, chapter, in verse 6, I believe we can't get around the idea that there's some sort of sexual deviancy going on here with this, this woman, this young woman, probably 13 or 14 from what I understand historically, dancing before these men. Now, 
Scholars argue about that, but I can't imagine how we can interpret sending a 14-year-old girl out to dance before a bunch of men at a drunken birthday party and expecting that not to be sinful in some way, shape, or form. Verse 7, Herod's sin is that he takes a rash oath, that he promises something that he should not have promised. In verse 9, we see that he fears man and not God. That he goes through with this murder because he didn't want the people at his birthday party to to think badly of him. But he didn't care what God thought of him. Verse 10, he carries out the murder. In verse 11, he greatly dishonors John the Baptist, this great prophet of God. And think about this with me. We read past this by putting his head on a platter and taking it through a birthday party. Now, what could that possibly mean and what could that possibly symbolize? Now, Matthew Poole says this. I think he's right. Herodias will have her husband and his guests see that John the Baptist's head in a charger was to her as pleasing a dish as any that was at Herod's feast. Right? It's on a platter. This is a good thing. This is a delightful thing that this man has been murdered. And here's his head. And if we'll take history, you take it with a grain of salt, but there are historians that have said that this woman, Herodias, took John the Baptist's head, pulled out his tongue, and pierced it with a needle at this moment because with his tongue... He had sinned against her in her mind by telling her that she wasn't lawfully his wife. The horror of King Herod can be seen in the unspeakable sin that he had fallen into. Now, the next point of this I want us to listen to. The horror of King Herod is not just in his sin, not just in his bad conscience. The horror of King Herod is the slippery state that he was put into in this birthday party. I want you to think about King Herod. He had done everything in his life to lift up himself and to achieve honor for himself. He had John the Baptist arrested so that he would be honored. This man's telling me I'm doing something unlawful. I'm going to show how much honor I have. I'm going to arrest him. He shows his own honor by throwing a great birthday bash, by trying to please his guests, by taking an oath, by murdering somebody. But this birthday party, it seems to me, was custom fitted for the fall of King Herod. I think that Psalm 73 and verse 18 comes true in the case of Herod. Listen to these terrifying words of the psalmist as he considers the wicked. Notice what the psalmist says. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment utterly swept away by terrors. By terrors. One of the judgments that God sometimes gives to wicked people is He puts them in a position where they cannot escape the temptation and they add great sin to themselves. I don't think that we see a a better representation of this than the other King Herod that we read of in Acts chapter 12. You might know the story that he heard that the killing of James the Apostle pleased the people, and so he goes out and he arrests Peter as well. And he plans to murder Peter. But then Peter escapes, and the next day Herod steps up and gives an oration to the people, right? How do the people respond? They say, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. And rather than him saying, I'm just a man, he takes that acclaim, and God strikes him dead at that moment. The temptation that was given to King Herod 
was more than he could bear. And God, in some sense, put him in that position. And that is a terrifying thought, and it makes our minds maybe do donuts, but I would tell you that this is the testimony of Scripture. Herod sought to honor himself, arresting John at this lavish party with a rash oath. But for Herod, this is the point I want us to see, Herod, seeking for honor all of his life, turned to horror for him. It turned to horror. And Herod serves as a warning to all of us today. Herod serves as a warning to all of us today. I I know that when people come into my office and they're asking for advice on whether they should do such and such a thing, often one of the things that's a cornerstone piece of my counsel is, will you have a good conscience in the future if you go through with this action? Right? It might be comfortable now. It might be pleasing to your flesh at this moment. But in the future, when you look back with the mirror of God's Word examined, are you going to have a good conscience about this? And I would tell you that the Bible tells us that a good conscience is something that is to be highly valued in our personal Christian lives. We are to look and seek to have a good conscience. And as the Apostle Paul says in Acts 24 and verse 16, He says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I'd ask you, is that your your goal and your striving in your life? To read the Word of God, to understand it, and to take pains like the Apostle Paul says. I do something that makes me uncomfortable so that I'd have a clear conscience. It's that valuable to me. And we need to cultivate that. We have to cultivate a good conscience by learning the Word of God and what God requires of us. And when we see sin taking root in our hearts, we kill it. We cut it off immediately. Because sin deceives and sears our conscience like King Herod's here. Now, when I was, I'm ashamed to say perhaps, but when I was 13, I think, I started smoking cigarettes, right? And I remember when I started smoking um, I had weak lungs and a weak stomach, and it would cause me to cough tremendously and throw up at times, right? But, I'm ashamed to say, it got a lot easier as I I continued to attempt to engage in this activity, and my lungs hardened, my stomach got stronger, and I could go forth with doing this habit um, without without any physical ramifications that I could see immediately, at least. Now, the conscience is much the same. The conscience is much the same. When we first start to engage in an activity, our conscience, like a barking dog, could scream at us that you should not be doing this thing. Stop it. But the more we, the more we do it, like Brian Borgman says, we kick that dog of the conscience. And eventually that dog stops barking at all. For the sake of your spiritual health and growth... We should take King Herod, think about his deadened conscience, how it led to such a great sin, and it should cause us to say, do I have sin in my own heart? Is there something that I know the Word of God is convicting me of, but I'm refusing to deal with it? I would ask you to deal with it today, to confess it to a brother or sister, confess it to the Lord Jesus Christ, and try to put it to death. Because there is horror in a troubled conscience. Now, that's not to say if you have a troubled conscience, you're unsaved by no means. But if we have a troubled conscience, it affects our assurance before the Lord. It affects our fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We hide things from one another. And we don't live in community. Troubled conscience is something that 
we should abhor in the Christian life. But, again, there's, a, I believe, a more horrific warning here. Like Herod, continually refusing to repent of your sins, continually refusing to come to Christ in His grace, can lead to a point where you may be broken on the rocks of unbelief. I want you to think about Proverbs 29.1 that says, like Herod, he who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will be suddenly broken and beyond healing. How many people do we know that that's been the case? That have unfortunately and terribly died in their sins knowing that they've refused the gospel all the days of their life. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, listen, Christ is open to anybody that will come to Him. If you have your conscience troubled because of your own sin and you think you can't come, then you don't know what the Bible says about our Savior. He accepts every kind of sin and every sinner heals them and brings them into His family. Repent and come to Jesus Christ and you will find forgiveness and healing and a renewed conscience according to His Word. But I would tell you today that this narrative that we're reading... It has a couple of different elements to it I think we should focus on. It not only warns us against sin, but this narrative encourages us to persevere in the faith. Because the other primary character, although he is passive in the entire text, is John the Baptist. But rather than the horror of John the Baptist that we might naturally think in our human way of thinking, I think this text tells us about the honor of John the Baptist. The honor of John the Baptist. With Herod, his honor ended in horror. But with John the Baptist, his horror ended in great eternal honor for him. The honor of being a prophet. As we think about this man who was put to death in this text, I just want us to think about the things that are said about John the Baptist. We see even in our text in verse 5 that he was greatly esteemed by the people for they all considered him to be prophet. He was honored by, by almost everybody at the time, except King Herod, obviously. And we are meant, as we read through this, to mourn such an honored man of God. And I would tell you, no man was honored more in his life. And um, all the people esteemed him as a prophet. But again, to bring up a history, and we take it with a grain of salt again, a lot of the people at this time, when Herod's kingdom was stormed and taken over by foreign armies, a lot of the Jewish people at this time, they pointed to King Herod and said, this is your fault for killing John the Baptist. That's how honored he was, right? In his time, that they thought that Jerusalem was being overthrown because John the Baptist was killed. But the esteem of Jesus Christ in his life is greater than all the honors conferred to him by other men, aren't they? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11. And again, what I'm trying to say is, we ought to think about John the Baptist in this text. We ought to mourn the death of such a godly man. He's esteemed by the people. <clears throat> and we know that the esteem of the world can be fleeting and deceptive, but he was esteemed by Jesus Christ in a greater way. Notice what's said in verse 11 of chapter 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist? That's an amazing statement. Can you imagine our Savior saying something, anything like that to you? I, I, would, I would be beside myself if Jesus said that I, 
mowed my lawn better than anybody born of women, right? I would take that as a great honor. But John the Baptist, he said to be the greatest prophet, I believe, in context of any man born among women. In verse 14, notice, and if you're willing to accept it, Jesus says, he is Elijah who is to come. The man that was the pinnacle when you thought of an Old Testament prophet, you thought of Elijah. When you thought of a godly man that needs to be honored, you thought of Elijah. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, with infallible knowledge, says this man is Elijah to come. He was honored for being a great prophet, but he had a greater honor, I would tell you in this text, for being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Being persecuted for the sake of Christ. He is honored in his death. We see that explicitly at the end of this passage. Even though Herod puts his head on a platter to display before his dinner guests in great dishonor, notice what his disciples do. They go and gather his body to be buried and tell it to Jesus. His disciples honored him in his his death. John the Baptist and Herod could not have lived more radically different lives. Both of them sought honor. But one man sought the honor of himself and the other sought the honor of God through preaching the truth. While Herod's attempts to honor himself ended in horror, John's death was one that was supposed to be horrific but ended in honor. And we might say, how do we know that? Well, we know that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. We know that John the Baptist, as that knife was put to his throat and his head was severed from his body in the most gruesome and violent ways, that that was his entrance into eternal life forever. Honored forever before God because of this. And we even see this explicitly in the book of Matthew. As we look in Matthew chapter 5, we see the words of our Savior. It says in verse 11, Blessed! Are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We have been, we've been prepared by Christ for a long period of time. In His preaching, especially in chapters 10 and onward, that we might have to forsake family to cling to Jesus Christ. Persecution might come to us where even our family gives us up to the government to be put to death. But we have to persevere in that. And John the Baptist has the honor not only of being honored in his life as a prophet, not only being honored by being persecuted for Christ, but by being our godly example for our own personal perseverance. Jesus has told us numerous times that we will be hated for the sake of the Gospel. And John shows that he has persevered through that by the help of the Holy Spirit. John gives us flesh and blood example of what perseverance in faith looks like in this text. So I believe that those are the two main focuses that we should have here. But it's hard to read through this text as you meditate on it and not see not only the the horror of Herod, the honor of John the Baptist, but the harbinger, which is the foretelling or the, the shadowing of Jesus Christ. And here, we see the ultimate horror and the ultimate honor being placed side by side. The suffering of Jesus Christ. We see the most terrible kind of dishonor by the hands of men. Now, when we think of dishonor, 
The dishonor that we can experience is always held in ratio to the kind of honor that we naturally should have in this life, right? If we are to, to treat somebody in prison with the same way we treat the President of the United States, we view those in two totally different ways. And Jesus Christ being the man of God without sin, He suffered terrible dishonor. In His death, we know that the soldiers placed a, a fake royal robe on him and a crown on his head. They beat him. They spit on him. They nailed him to a cross. And they showed him in the Jewish theology of the time that he is a cursed man being hung on a tree. Jesus Christ was greatly dishonored by the hands of men. And I will tell you that Jesus himself seemed to look at the death of John the Baptist and teach his disciples that this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to me in my life. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And as you're turning there, the the point that I'm trying to, to give to you is that when you read this passage, when you meditate on it, you should see that Jesus Christ and His death is being shadowed here. Notice chapter 17 and verses 10 through 13. After they come down the Mount of Transfiguration, His disciples asked Him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Or that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah already has come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatsoever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Christ's death is being foreshadowed here as something that we should expect in the narrative as we read it. The suffering and dishonor of Christ was terrible at the hands of men, much more than John the Baptist even, but that's only a small picture of the dishonor that Jesus Christ faced as He was dishonored in part, saying it uh, carefully, by God on the cross. All of our sins were placed upon His shoulders where 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says He became sin for us and God crushed His only begotten Son on that tree. The ultimate horror was experienced by Jesus Christ on that cross where He suffered the death that we all deserve to pay. Jesus' suffering and dishonor ultimately were done by the hand of the Father for our good. For our good. But He's also not just a harbinger This text is not just a harbinger of Christ's death, it's a harbinger of our salvation. John can function as an example for us of how we can persevere in the Christian life, but Jesus does far more than that. He took the sins of us. He sends His Holy Spirit to make sure that all of His elect will persevere to the end. John's death was his own entrance into eternal life. But Jesus Christ is the assurance that all of us, if we cling to faith in Him, will experience the same eternal life given to us. And as I've already quoted in part, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I quote a larger piece here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 14 through 15. We see, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. 
And more than that, we also see that while the story of John ends with burial, that the story of Jesus is different than that. Certainly, Jesus Christ died on the cross in reality. He was truly buried. But we know that our Savior rose victorious from the dead and that He lives now forever making intercession for His people. He was raised to give assurance to all that His payment for our sin was accepted by the Father and He rose from the dead to give us assurance that we will rise to a better life. So, I would propose to you today as we read through this text, we should see the horror of sinfulness, the honor of perseverance, and we should be expecting in the text that Jesus Christ and His death is coming to us soon. And I would ask you today, having a multitude of people that I, I'm not sure I'm familiar with you, and especially not familiar enough with your souls, I'd ask you today, do you believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe and have faith in? I don't mean just believe in an intellectual way. Do you put all of your faith, all of your weight on the fact that Jesus Christ did everything for me? That His death perfectly paid for all of my sins and His life gave me all the righteousness that I need to stand before the Father uncondemned and clean. If you have faith in that, you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 116, that the Father greatly delights in your death. Not, not to bring you to dishonor, but to bring you to glory. Do you believe it? I would read for you the simplicity of the Gospel just in, in closing here in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. It's a very well-known text. Do not let your, your conscience... Be troubled to the point where you will not come to Christ. If you have a bad conscience here today, go to the only one that can cleanse it. Notice what is said about the gospel in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No asterisk. For with the heart... One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on Him. Notice verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'd ask you to consider the end of Herod, the end of John the Baptist, and the question in your mind, which side of the... The text am I on here? And regardless of what side you're on, the answer is always the same. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Well, brothers, would you come forward? Brother Joey, would you come forward? I guess I'll stand here for now.